Welcome to EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. Today, we are joined by Pippa Goli from Zero Carbon Capital. We discuss climate change and how to invest in it, with a particular focus on how small companies can turn into something meaningful on a global scale. We also talk about some social aspects, including the challenges of giving underrepresented groups greater access to venture capital. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on all good podcast services, including iTunes, Google, and Spotify. So without any further ado, enjoy this episode. And today on the podcast, we are joined by Pippa Gawley, who is director and founder at Zero Carbon Capital. Welcome to the podcast, Pippa. Thank you, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here. As usual, we'll start with finding a bit more about you. So perhaps you can tell us how you became an EIS fund manager. So I guess that's a journey that starts with starting to invest. I started doing that about five years ago as an angel investor. We were living in California at the time, and I became very interested in the idea of using business to solve the big problems and big challenges of mankind. I think, you know, from my uh, previous work, I'd uh, often seen that there was this big gap in between charities and the kind of commercial world and wondered why there wasn't a bit more in the middle. And over time, I think that concept of social enterprises, like businesses that combine profit and purpose, had you know, kind of risen up and developed in the, in the world. And, you know, I think now uh, that's being supported by a world of uh, investors who identify as being impact investors. So people who are trying to have a, a dual impact with their investing, they're trying to make the world a better place, and they are trying to get a financial return as well. That's evolving a little bit further now into um, uh, the concept of profit because of purpose, not just profit and purpose. Um, and people are starting to drop the word impact because it's associated too much with concessionary returns. So I was angel investing in um, the energy space and got more and more focused on climate change. And I realized you know, that this was the biggest thing that I could do personally to impact climate change was to support early stage innovation. There's a big gap in funding for physical science innovation. And these are things that have huge potential to accelerate the zero carbon transition by reducing greenhouse gas emissions, as well as doing well financially, because this is something that's increasingly valuable to the world as we see the, the impacts of climate change. So that was what I dedicated myself to. When we moved back to the UK, I wanted to scale the amount that I was investing in order to have a greater impact. And that was where I started thinking about doing a fund. Uh, and I realized pretty quickly that um, if you want to appeal to private investors in the UK, you need to be linked in with the EIS concept um, and giving those benefits to people. So um, we settled fairly quickly on doing an EIS fund um, and the Zero Carbon Fund uh, was born, which is supported by Zero Carbon Capital, which is our, our mentoring company. Okay. So you've got Zero Carbon Capital, which is essentially created the fund to do the sort of investing that you kind of outlined there. Is that fair? Yes. Yeah. And I suppose every listener probably has an idea about what the climate change issue are. Yeah. Or issues. I mean, there's multiple issues, I suppose. There's one core one. But I think there's a lot of subtopics or sub-issues, and it's very complicated. So at the risk of putting the spot, can you succinctly sort of give us a quick summary sort of where things are and, and sort of what, what some of the issues are that you see? Yeah, absolutely. So the issue of climate change, I think everybody will be familiar with. Um, the, the world is rapidly warming and that's creating all kinds of problems in the natural environment, uh, including uh, increased ocean acidification, which is affecting all of the life in the ocean, including uh, severe weather events, which are getting more severe and more frequent. And the, these patterns are linked to the uh, rise in temperature, which is linked to uh, increased percentage of carbon dioxide or other warming gases in our atmosphere. So this has been gradually increasing since the Industrial Revolution when we started digging um, fossil fuel out of the ground and burning it. Um, and essentially, we're, we are emitting greenhouse gases or carbon dioxide and methane are the, the two main ones uh, at a rate that nature cannot absorb. Uh, and it's starting to create 
real problems in our ability to live on this planet. So virtually all of the world's scientists agree that we need to limit our greenhouse gas emissions in order to try and keep these phenomena at a level that we can tolerate. They've generally coalesced around a figure of uh, 1.5 or 2 degrees of warming to try and to try and keep below this 1.5 degrees figure, which is is, is rapidly uh, getting out of reach uh, in terms of something that we we could hope to to achieve uh, because uh, leading corporations and governments have been too slow to to react to this issue. So we're just trying to limit the damage basically, and we uh, the, the the main emissions that we are that we have as a human race. Uh, fall into five main areas. So there's um, the buildings, um, so the the embedded carbon in the buildings and also the heating and cooling of those buildings. Electricity generation, which is obviously a big one. So the fact that historically we've burned gas and coal to make electricity and uh, we're now starting to shift to more renewable forms of energy, but that needs to, to happen more quickly. But that also creates all kinds of problems. Effective transportation. So we, we often think about electric cars um, starting to replace uh, petrol cars, but there's also other forms of transportation which uh, create a lot of emissions, including aviation and um, maritime travel. Uh, the food and agricultural systems, there's starting to be more focus on that now. Um, but l- the way we use land and the way we um, treat livestock for for food uh, creates an enormous amount of emissions as well. And finally, um, industrial emissions, which is uh, one of the hardest areas to de- decarbonize. But the production of steel and concrete in, in particular are huge contributors to emissions. You know, the way that we consume everything, all of the all of the plastic that we um, consume creates issues down the road with uh, plastic pollution, which is not directly related to climate change, but the use of the petrocarbons to produce those plastics is part of that, that issue. There's an awful lot that is not sustainable about our current lifestyle in terms of nature's ability to support it. The good news is that we can we can maintain our current standard of living. We might need to change some things, but we we can maintain our current standard of living if we embrace some of these changes that we're talking about. And you know, technology has already come a long way in terms of um, helping us to fix this problem. You know, solar panels, wind turbines, uh, batteries. You know, these are all things that are helping us to reduce our carbon emissions now. And we, our investment thesis is around how. We need to um, support technology innovation further to make these technologies cheaper and better, and that will accelerate this transition. We also still need to find solutions in some of these areas where we don't yet have viable solutions. So, for example, making steel, making concrete, uh, and also a growing area of um, negative emissions technologies. So, trying to suck carbon dioxide out of the air because we've, we've left it so late that it's not plausible that we can solve this without those negative emissions as well. One thing you touched on there is is sort of technology versus behaviour, and I think that's one of the debates that's sort of out there. Is to there's all the dream, if you like, is that we find some sort of technology silver bullet or a whole pile of silver bullets, and we just enact these technologies, and we all just carry on as we are, and all these people in the third world become nice and well off and they can live the same lifestyles we can and that's it. Whereas I think more realistically, some sort of behavioural change has to happen, but I'm not quite sure where the balance is. And I know there's a lot of different views on that out there. So I'm not sure what your perspective is. Yeah, I think, and I think that's something that has been growing in a lot of people's consciousness uh, after the net zero goals were embraced by the government last year and and indeed enacted into law. Before that, we had a goal of getting to 80% of our 1990 emissions in the UK. And now we have a goal of getting to zero. And zero is very different from 20%, right? You you can kind of think about how you might be able to efficiency your way down to 20%, like, you know, better cars, better, better, coal-fired power stations that were cleaner somehow. But you can't efficiency your way to zero. You know, we, we need to change things pretty radically. Um, and that's what we need to do. So, yes, there will be things that people can 
can change about their behavior. I maintain that we don't need to sacrifice having a wonderful life, right? We can, we will still be able to, to drive places. We just need to use electric cars. We, we might, you know, embrace mass transit a bit more, walking rather than jumping in the car, that kind of thing. But it, you know, as an individual, everybody has it within their power to, to eat less meat, which is one of the biggest things they can do. To change uh, who their pension is invested with or their personal investments, to change who they bank with, um, and to change who they vote for. And those are you know, probably the three biggest things that we can all do as individuals that really don't cost us anything um, and indeed will be, could be positive for our health and for other areas of our lifestyle. It's great if people want to go further than that, but we need to be mindful about all these incredibly confusing messages that could be conflicting to people, you know, use less plastic or go by car, don't go. It's, it's, it can be quite confusing for the individual. So, you know, I do think the onus is on businesses and government to, to make the changes that are required for people to, you know, continue broadly with their lifestyles because people aren't going to make big, big sacrifices. You know, we've, we've seen that, but enable people to, to have a lower carbon footprint through, for example, you know, changing the way that our electricity is produced. I mean, I don't, you know, you don't know, I don't know where exactly how my electricity was was generated and I don't really care as long as there's electricity. So, you know, we that's something we can change without anybody knowing or caring. So, you know, there, there's, there's, there is a balance. Um, I think everybody can and should take the big actions that, that will, you know, the government again has a responsibility to make it clear what those are. But we sh- we shouldn't expect people to to go back to living in in yurts and you know growing all their own vegetables because they're they're not going to. So, you know, we need to find that balance. Yeah, yeah, it, it's, all, it's all very hard. So, in thinking about these things from an investment perspective, how do you start with something as small as an EIS fund to generate activities or companies that will move the needle? in terms of sort of climate change because i think it would be very easy to do find something that sort of says okay we re i don't know recycle stuff in edinburgh or or whatever and that's not a good thing i'm sorry not a bad thing but it's so what um, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. We we need we need everything. Right? So so and it's great that everybody is drawn to a different part of this problem. So there's plenty of people where what they want to do is recycle things in Edinburgh or their local environment, and that's great. And they should do that. You know, we we're we're focused on a on a bigger picture, the kind of the swinging for the fences, as they they say in America, <laughs> to say right, we we really want to look for things that will have a big impact, a half a half gigaton at scale, and that won't be. You know, to put that into perspective, that's about one percent of global emissions. So it's more than the whole emissions of the UK right now. Uh, so you know, of course, so that's a very big target for a very it's small company. It's a very company. big target, right? So, so of course, no, <laughs> the companies we're investing in won't achieve that next year, or maybe not even in ten or even twenty years. But we have to believe that they can have that impact at scale. And to get confidence around that and to have some objectivity, um, we're using a tool called Crane. You can see it online at cranetool.org, which has been developed by some of the biggest uh, climate investors in the US and some of the research institutions there, where it's the only tool I'm aware of that helps you to put a number on the future impact of a technology. So you can go in there. um, It's a free tool. Anybody can use it. It's open source. So you can go in there and say, right, what if I could make electric cars 10% cheaper? How would that affect the uptake? And if I made these set of assumptions, then I can see that's going to have half gigaton a year impact by 2050, for example. And I, we, we hold ourselves to that standard of that kind of accountability, because otherwise I think you, you could get sucked into a great story that doesn't actually have a big climate impact. There are other tools, there are many tools that help you to measure the warming potential of a current company, of their, their operations, but not the impact of their future technology. So um, if anybody is aware of any other tools like this, we'd love to hear about it. So please, you know, get in touch via Brian and let us know. Um, but, but this is the tool that, that we're using and we would um, strongly encourage other climate investors to, to use that tool too. Yeah. I mean, obviously, this is an area that's developing quickly. And I think there's a gap between... Well, there has certainly has been a gap between theory and practice, and the, the difficulty of measuring these things in 
a meaningful way is quite substantial. Um, so it's good to see that progress would be made on that because it, it, it allows us to prioritise a bit. Yeah, you're, you're right. It helps us to prioritise where we want to invest. But you also asked about how, you know, how does a little company turn to a big company? And of course, you know, all, all technologies have to start somewhere, right? <laughs> um, and I think one of the issues plaguing this area and the area of kind of investing in physical science innovation in general is that typically there's a long cycle time to scale. And, you know, you need to have years of building a pilot plant and then building another pilot plant and then a bit bigger and then scaling. And, you know, it's a long time before you're going to see your return on investment. And it's true that some of the things we're investing in will be in that category too. What has really changed, we believe, is that there are so many sources of capital now seeking low carbon innovation. So these companies no longer need to fully scale before they are valuable as an acquisition target. So we think that um, a lot of the corporate venture capital investors will be interested in investing in or acquiring these companies you know, once they've got to a certain point of de-risking the technology, and they won't necessarily have scaled fully at that point. You mentioned earlier about there's been a sh- historic shortage of capitalists in this area. Do you think this long time horizon is one of the primary reasons behind that? Or do you think it's just the technologies aren't well enough developed? Why do you think this area hasn't been getting enough funding? Yeah, so I mean, two things there. Just generally, hardware innovation, it definitely is that um, perception of the long time until you get your return and also that you're going to need a lot of capital in order to get it to scale. So that, that's plagued kind of early stage physical science. Secondly, that investors uh, struggle, not all investors are able to understand the technology and the potential of the technology, which again applies to all physical science innovation. Um, and thirdly, in the area of climate change in particular, I think it's not been clear until really the last few years that, that the world is starting to come to terms with the fact that you know, of the, the size of this problem and how close how close the impact of climate change is and how huge the impacts are going to be. And really, they've started to realise that the costs of doing nothing massively outweigh the costs of actually embracing a zero carbon transition. And I think, you know, that now makes this, it, it, this that now aligns all the, the stages of follow-on capital and the kind of the machinery of the market is now in motion to make this a more attractive area to invest in. And you see that with, uh, you know, dozens of new climate funds coming to market in the last year alone. So do you feel this time is right arriving? Because I remember talking about ESG 20 years ago when I was sort of learning my fund management skills. And it's been there in the background and it's sort of ticked along as kind of a, a minority interest, but it's never really taken off. Do you think there's something that will change that now? Yeah, I think that the time is now, definitely. I think all of the huge investment managers, when you listen to all of the main banks, have now uh, embraced ESG as being mainstream, that they're reporting on ESG metrics for even their, their like non-impact funds. And they are acknowledging that those funds which uh, have better governance, that have better social outcomes and have better environmental outcomes, they also have better financial outcomes. Uh, and there are so many studies that show that now that it's it, they, they can no longer you know, kind of ignore it and pretend that there's some kind of difference in between, you know, this world where we extract things and make money and this world where we invest in environmental solutions. It's the same world. So, you know, we, we I think that the, the concept of, you know, ESG and um, focusing on ESG and that delivering superior financial returns is is here now and it's it's here to stay and it's mainstream. Uh, it's quite interesting in the current environment where we're, 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 in some sense, hopefully coming out of this COVID pandemic just now. But it seems to have triggered, certainly in, in the areas I read and listen to, a bigger conversation about the environment. And maybe we're appreciating that COVID came from our interaction with the environment. But do you think this will accelerate that trend or change it? Or do you think it was just... It's just another thing that's already sort of in place. Yeah, we're seeing a few really interesting effects there. For sure, I think it's made some people think about 
the way that we treat the natural world and how that for so long we've just taken it for granted and extracted from it. We've exceeded its capacity to absorb what we're doing. Um, and I think, you know, this this pandemic is a is an example of that. It's the, the way that we're living, um, you know, more con- concentrated in cities, you know, not respecting the natural environment or, you know, enabling biodiversity. And it's, you know, and there's all kinds of social factors that play into that. But, you know, I think I think there's some appreciation of how these these issues are linked, not that, you know, the pandemic has anything directly to do with, with climate change. There's a few other more more direct effects, though. Um, For example, as energy demand decreased uh, during the lockdown period, uh, it forced all of the big energy producers to admit that the cheapest way of getting energy is is from renewables. So, you know, the marginal cost of energy energy from wind turbine is zero. Um, So the first thing that got turned off was was coal and gas. And the, the and solar and wind were providing virtually all of we had 67 days in the UK with no coal. So the longest time in 150 years. <laughs> so, it's gloriously so, you know, sunny. And, and then we all saw what impact that had on visibility, on clarity of water. And, you know, and obviously this is not, you know, this the, the this pandemic is a tragedy and um, it's not something we'd want to repeat. But I think it's hopefully again um, made people realise that that it is possible, and it's forced a lot of those energy companies into um, you know it's accelerated their declaring of those assets as stranded. So, for example, BP had to write off um, it was you know about a fifth of their capitalisation value uh, as they they were forced to declare that their their coal was was a stranded asset. So you know that's so that's another way that it's uh, accelerating um, this transition. And the the final area is that. Uh, that the that governments around the world are linking their reinvestment plans, their recovery plans. They're making it a green recovery. They're seeing the benefits of you know using this money that they've got to put into the economy anyway, of structuring it to support their net zero goals as well. So you know we're going to see all kinds of government investment into infrastructure, into you know retrofitting, um, and just making sure they're getting you know making the money count twice if you like. Uh, you know, and there's lots of pressure on all of the governments to, you know, in the, in the developed world to make sure that that is happening. It's quite interesting in terms of there's this mantra about never waste a good crisis. We've seen perhaps in the recent past that it's been done in ways that a lot of people would not necessarily appreciate. I know some of the things that have changed in New Orleans after the hurricane have been much discussed about the changes that were made there that perhaps more in a neoliberal sort of thing, which a lot, a lot of people haven't appreciated. So... It's interesting to see this time that we are getting sort of talk around that, doing things that are actually populist in the good way in terms of actually let's make things better for everybody. Um, and obviously you, you've got social movements which seem to be part of that. I think even before this, we had a Green New Deal uh, being proposed in the States and perhaps one or two other places and very actively being linked to social issues because it's behavioural as well. And I don't know to what extent you as an investor can sort of say, well, okay, there's all these other social issues tied up in there. So, or do you have to say, well, actually, there's there's this area we, you know, we're focusing on something. So this is the area we can affect. And these all things are nice and we'll support them as best we can. Uh, how do you handle that? And that's a good question. I think you know there are plenty of investors out there who are looking at this with a with a focus on gender or on minorities. Um, we're not taking that lens. We're, we've got a technology lens, but we absolutely look at everything we're we're doing, um, and we look at the the externalities of it in terms of you know what are the other impacts this technology could have. Um, and we're, you know, we're not going to invest in something that also, you know, has a negative effect on biodiversity or on, you know, on on um, any kind of social issue as well. Uh, the reality is that the vast majority of things that are good for the environment are also good for social equality. Um, you know, if you look at things like better insulation, it's good for the environment. It also reduces the cost of your energy bill. You know, better public transport that helps everybody. Um, one of the other things we were touching on earlier is that that you know one of the things that makes this an interesting time for the UK in particular is you know post post Brexit I think we're looking for you know what our role is in the world uh, and within Europe and you know the government is putting a lot of focus on um, investing in research and development which will also help this area that will be something that that also plays into this world of investing mm-hmm. yeah I mean certainly there's been 
I guess one of the issues out there is the sort of link between academia and commerce, which has improved a lot over the last sort of couple of decades, I would imagine, but um, probably still has uh, something to go in these sort of areas. Yes, I think you're right. Um, and I think that, you know, again, the government has a big role to play in in creating those, creating that connective tissue. But, um, you know, we, as I mentioned, we were living in um, the US for the last nine years. And I think that um, they, they are, their ecosystem is a little bit more developed in terms of, um, you know, so many uh, different funding groups, incubators, accelerators, uh, investor groups. And we're starting to see that happening more in the UK as well, I think, especially in, in the climate area. Um, so, you know, I think, I think some of those connections are starting to, um, to come to fruition here too. Yeah, I mean, certainly, obviously, Silicon Valley is a huge infrastructure. And I think when you have an infrastructure that's got that scale, there is not just greater scope for speciation, but actually there's a greater advantage in being specialised. London, we've probably got the best scale in Europe. But at the same time, it's still nothing like uh, what Silicon Valley has. Uh, so it's interesting to see that we are seeing some specialisations sort of particularly in this area, sort of uh, crop up. Yes, and and some of the bigger you know, funds and groups in the US and other countries are starting to come to Europe as well. So, for example, you know, Breakthrough Energy Ventures, which is the, the climate investing arm of the, the Bill Gates um, empire, uh, that's now set up shop in, in Paris um, to invest across Europe. Um, they haven't deployed any capital yet, but hopefully that's coming. Um, and that, that kind of capital, so two of our, um, angel portfolio companies had um, series A's with breakthrough and you know it's um, it, that kind of having that kind of muscle at the series A stage can make a really big difference to how quickly a company can scale so it'd be great to see them coming here yeah because I suppose one of the questions or one of the potential risks for companies is it's fine you being their EIS stage but as you say these long-run pro- long-term projects are going to need a lot of future funding and we need to know that there is somewhere in the infrastructure for these companies to get that funding. Yeah, and then there's, you know, like two billion in Amazon's new climate pledge fund. I mean, and that's global. So, you know, that should hopefully <laughs> come here too. And, you know, I'd yeah. encourage all entrepreneurs to be looking at looking at some of these opportunities. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot out there at the moment. Yeah, so hopefully that doesn't lead to price inflation. I and mean, we've already seen what SoftBank's <laughs> big fund did for people. Yes, yes. Interesting. Yes. Yeah. So part of what you do, you have this need for a sort of theory of change, which um, is an idea I've come across a couple of times recently. And I thought it might be interesting to get you to articulate that because it's it's an interesting way of thinking about how um, you can frame investments or um, how they can have an impact. Yeah, so the way we think about it, uh, theory of change or like logical framework, which are kind of related techniques. And um, I think people from the kind of grant or aid world would be very familiar with this idea. It's really looking, it's the concept of looking at the impact that you want to have, your eventual outcome, and then linking all of the actions up to that point, and then looking for the strength of the evidence at, at, at each stage. So, um, you know, I have, a, I have an example here of a company that we invested in in the US um, that is improving the supply of battery-grade lithium. And so you can imagine that that will eventually impact um, the uptake of electric vehicles, but it's like looking at each step of that and saying, well, you know, we're going to make it faster and cheaper to get lithium out of out of brine. Um, that means that lithium prices will stay low or become even lower, and that will accelerate the adoption of electric vehicles because the battery pack is about a quarter of the cost of an entry-level electric vehicle. And therefore, that will help us to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by at least half a gigaton a year with that investment. So I've kind of whisked through that quickly, but the essential thing is that there you've got a series of logical steps linking their activity to your ultimate goal. And you can look for the strength of the evidence of each of those links. Like, is there any primary research? If not, you know, what? who are the experts here? And do they think this is plausible that, you know, it, it, it kind of makes sense to me that if lithium is cheaper, it's, it's going to enable batteries to be cheaper. But is that actually true? You know, what, what other innovations are happening in this space that maybe will reduce the amount of lithium that we need so the cost won't be so relevant? So, you know, it's really just looking at the, the stage, uh, each stage of the logic and, uh, you know, if each of those steps really make sense. 
I would imagine that assessing the science is a potential challenge here because you have a lot of things that theoretically or potentially might have uh, attractions, but there's obviously, they're still underdeveloped. You still don't know in some cases whether things will scale or perhaps you might not even know if things work at all. How do you handle that? Yeah, and you're right, it's a huge risk. And as with any early stage companies, not all of these technologies are, are going to succeed or make it to scale for, for lots of different reasons, right? So the best we can do at investment stage is to, to make sure that the science does check out. It's it's you know, it's feasible from a scientific perspective. And then to look at the the route to market, whether again it makes sense <laughs> that that are, you know, each each stage is costed and understood and um, you know the, how a, a potential customer might use that that process is is kind of being thought through and um, it all adds up. Uh, but in terms of the the scientific side, I mean you're right. We we can't be um, my my uh, business partner and I both have um, scientific backgrounds, but um, you know we can't be experts in everything, and we're not pretending to. <laughs> so uh, you know we we're kind of building up a team of advisors and technical experts who really um, have high levels of domain expertise so that we can go to them and say, right, we, we've seen this you know, battery anode idea. Does that work? Does it make sense? Does this solve the problem? You know, would this enable faster charging? And, you know, what, what are the risks that we should be, be thinking about and talking to the entrepreneur about? So, you know, really trying to partner with um, specific experts in different areas to, to get that um, input and then talking to multiple experts in each space um, against to de-risk it because you know, different perspectives. There's no, at the end of the day, there's no right or wrong answer about, yes, nobody can guarantee this technology is going to work. So it's really just trying to get a range of different opinions, um, triangulating all the information and um, then trying to work out, you know, on the balance of risks, whether we think it's 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 worth it. Yeah, it's kind of a probabilistic assessment more than actual concrete binary yes or no. Yes, when we spoke earlier, we were chatting a little bit about social media and the different perceptions people have. I think there's kind of a, lots of stereotypes about the environmental movement as a whole, but people have very different perspectives about things in, in a, almost in a moral sense about what's right. Now, you, you I, certainly I think back to uh, is it Muhammad Yunus's original idea of sort of social enterprise and he, mm. his, he had a strong view that it shouldn't be for profit at all. And certainly in his area of micro lending, there's evidence moving these things to profit didn't really work that well. But uh, you're firmly in the in the for profit camp, and 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 many people are, and I think there's been many things successful. But how do you sort of handle that? Sort of there's different people, sort of you know, with different almost different objectives here. Yeah, and you're, and you're right. One of the hard things in um, setting up the fund is that you have to, to a certain extent, put your head above the parapet. And it's not just, you know, having a dinner party conversation with friends. You've got to <laughs> get out there and talk about what you what your investment thesis is and, you know, having to put that down in writing and then um, putting it out in the world. And, of course, people are going to disagree. And that's, that is part of it. I, I think we have just tried to stay focused on you know, that what we think is do, we're doing is right. Um, and I think we're, we're fortunate that we found far, far more people who support what we're doing. They've invested in us or in, in, introduced us to somebody that's become an investor or, you know, just helped us in whatever way they are personally able to. But, you know, we, we have had some uh, some interesting run-ins with people on on uh, LinkedIn and Twitter. You know, <laughs> there's the obvious, you know, the climate change deniers. And it's interesting that that debate seems to have moved from, well, climate change isn't happening through to, well, there's no point in us doing anything uh, if Russia and China aren't doing anything. So, you know, I feel like the quality of that debate has improved a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> it's progress. Um, you know, and you get a lot of people criticising us for taking, I guess, a capitalist approach to this, which investing it is it has to be you know and people saying that no unless we reform capitalism then we won't reform the you know the, the environmental issues which i personally don't agree with but you know i can understand why people think that but i certainly don't think you know we, we can we can uh, fix what's wrong with capitalism and fix what's wrong with the the environment in the next 30 years and um so we've chosen to try and fix climate change within within the framework of of capitalism difficult thing to strike yeah i've got huge respect for anybody who has actually as you say 
constructed an investment thesis and stuck your head above the parapet and said, okay, we've thought this through and this is what we want uh, or this is what we think we can do. And it can be very hard to accept your limitations because there's always this feeling in something like this that there's more and you could be doing better. You could be some sort of vigorous ideal that actually nobody can ever really live up to, which is really tough. Yeah, as you say, there are lots of different perspectives here, and you know, we we are just trying to you know quietly get on with supporting these important companies. We're not trying to get out there and be an activist. I think there's a lot of people who are you know phenomenally brave in this area. You know, the Greta Thunbergs of this world who who are who take an awful lot of abuse. So you know, I I, I have a lot of respect for, for their patience. Yes, yes, I think she's doing incredibly well for someone who's who's so young as well. Another social aspect is that you are a female fund manager, uh, which makes you part of a very small minority in the venture capital industry as a whole. And it's something that perhaps the EIS industry is looking to do better in. I was just wondering, how have you found being a female fund manager? Well, um, I mean, nobody's been rude to my face which is which is good uh, and again um, we've had far more people comment positively like they want to support women and that they think it's great that you know that we have a, a mixed team and that I'm I'm leading this you know but we're very aware that the world of investing is incredibly male dominated and the world of clean tech is even more so male dominated and so you know where that world where those worlds overlap you know, there's fairly shocking statistics around, uh, you know, 2% of VC money in the UK, which is two years ago, um, going to female teams. It's it's a huge problem. I've been to events where I've been offered speaking positions, and I'm pretty sure it was only because I was a woman. And, the, you know, the only speaking slots you get offered are on the diversity panel. So, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a huge issue, you know, and I think, I think a lot of these event organisers and panel organisers and you know, people who are in a position to give airtime to people really need to think about the composition of what they're doing. And, you know, don't only have the black founders when you're talking about diversity, don't only have the women fund managers on the diversity panel, have them the whole time. Make sure every panel you have is a bit more balanced. You know, again, we have so much data that balanced teams make better decisions that really, you know, you are leaving, not you personally, but you, the world, are leaving money on the table if you don't try and make your teams more balanced. And again, I think the world is starting to come around to that perspective and realizing that it's worth making the investment of trying to cast a wider net to get those rewards. So, you know, I very much see that that men can, you know, in this world can be allies uh, and can be, you know, can help to be a voice for equality. And they can they can help us um, by con- trying to consider the the implicit bias in in their operations. So when do you hold events? Where do you hold events? Like how do you structure it? Like I've seen some great data around, you know, women asking more questions in pitch events during lockdown because everything's online and it's much easier to to ask a virtual question. Maybe you can do it anonymously than it is to put your room, your hand up in a room full of of men who are asking generally more aggressive questions, and you know, looking to kind of score points by ripping apart an idea. And I'm generalizing, but that is often what happens in, in pitch events. So, you know, let's let's think about that. Let's think about making these um, environments more friendly to all kinds of investors and all kinds of entrepreneurs um, in the way that they're, they're structured and presented and positioned. I think, you know, we all need to realize that we are part of of these social problems. So uh, whether whether we're talking about, um, you know, making sure we're representing people of different ethnicities or different genders, or at the very least not excluding any of them, we need to realize that we are all part of the problem and trying to to recognize that and trying to address it and and seeking to address it. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult. I mean, certainly I, I was I was on a panel on an event maybe eight or 10 months ago talking about the issue. And one of the things that struck me was that in terms of a lot of fund managers come from an entrepreneurial background. So if you don't have female entrepreneurs, then you can't have successful ones who then can't feed fund managers. And it's kind of this vicious cycle, if you like, that's kind of hard to break. 
And well, I mean, you know, uh, I'm going to make some cliches, chicken and egg about how you actually solve that. Yes. And, you know, a lot of it is around, like I said, just making sure that at all levels of the ecosystem, we're not excluding people. I have a, a colleague who is now setting up an accelerator to help founders from who are from overlooked backgrounds. And his point is, it was really around, there's so much talent out there and the people who are out there who could support that talent, they're not even, they're not in the same room. They're never in the same room. So, you know, they're, they're just not getting those opportunities. You know, I think for me, like I said, it's just around casting that wider net. So think about, you know, when you talk to people and they're, they're recruiting, whether it's, you know, that you're looking for companies to pitch at an event or you're looking for panelists to talk at an event or you're filling a position, just realize that you're most often just reaching out to people in your network. And if if you just do that, the world is only ever going to look like your network, which probably looks like you. So, you know, really think about how can you reach out to different people to get a, a wider range of, of people in at the top end of the tunnel. And then, you know, then I think a lot of it will just follow and be a virtuous cycle, not a chicken and egg. So, you know, if you have more women up on stage, you know, it becomes a different environment in the room and the questions become less aggressive. You know, it, the, the we female entrepreneurs will feel more confident if they can see that there are some female fund managers or female investors in the audience. Um, you know, I think all of these things are are things that, are, that can be fixed. You know, it's not beyond the wit of man to say, right, let's, let's make sure we've got some balance in the people that are, are talking at this event or that we're putting in this article or, you know, inviting on our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You mentioned the accelerator aiming at un- underrepresented people. Do you think there's a need for more of that where you can actually say to female entrepreneurs, right, here you specifically are welcome or or, or any other underrepresented group? Because I think certainly I, I go to events and it's the usual mix of 80 or 90 percent white um yeah white men typically middle-aged disproportionate public school accents and you can imagine somebody turning up and saying i don't fit and this isn't the place for me yeah quite and and it's just a huge problem because then you have you just you aren't as likely to get diversity of thought in there and that is how good decisions are made when ideas are challenged and when people are, you know, you're going to see something different than, than I'm going to see uh, in, a, in, a, in a certain pitch deck or, you know, business idea. Uh, and if we're not embracing those different points of view, you're leaving huge sources of risk unexamined. So, you know, um, you're, you're right. I think, you know, that kind of thing, incubators, accelerators, funds, even, you know, they, they all help in terms of, you uh, you know, just raising the issue, getting it talked about, giving entrepreneurs somewhere where they can go, where they know they're going to have a friendly reception. You know, that that all helps. They're starting to chip away at some of the structural issues as well. But yeah, I mean, again, it's a little like climate change and it's, you know, it's an all of the above type issue. You know, it's it goes all the way down to, you know, there are fewer, uh, you know, women doing scientific uh, or, you know, financial courses at university and then there are fewer women going into you know in in the clean tech case on the entrepreneur side um fewer women going into higher education or degrees or phds um in these subjects and therefore you know there are fewer entrepreneurs who, who they, it, it trickles all the way down so you know we need to go right back to how kids are educated and encouraged what messages they are getting about the world and you know i think i think that's changing you know when we see uh, you know, when I see what my kids, uh, you know, are exposed to at school, I think I think that is changing. But you know, it is it is a lot slower than you'd hope it would be. You know, I I was at university, you know, at the end of the last century, and uh, was very much in the minority as as an engineer. But you think then that it's it's solved. You know, like now, why why aren't women stepping up and kind of you know doing this? And you know, we realise now that we're, we're far from from having this uh, problem solved and it is it is there are, there are deep structural and social issues that 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 we need to address to to make this a more representative world as you say maybe it's like climate change in that we there is no silver bullet and there's no single big step that we can do to solve this but there's a lot of little steps we can do along the way and hopefully there's um, so female listeners here who might be inspired to think this is an area that I can be involved in, which perhaps they hadn't before. Yeah. So hopefully we can do a little bit along those lines. We'll 
like to move now on to our sort of standard questions. So I'm going to throw some few things at you. And if you can give sort of reasonably succinct ideas of what you think you, your your first thoughts are. So what was the most recent, recent investment that you made and why did you make it? So it was as an angel investor um, and it was here in the UK in a company called Thermialon which is a really awesome young team working on a novel way of producing aerogel insulation. Uh, so for those of you not super au fait with insulation, it's a kind of insulation that's a, a kind of expanded foam based upon a silicate-based material, and it has massively superior thermal insulation. Sorry, this isn't a short answer. Okay. <laughs> it's, a much, it's much better insulation <laughs> that enables um, new form factors. So it enables you to you know, have as much insulation in a thin layer of rendering as you would in like a, you know, right now, a, you know, several feet worth of, uh, you know, mineral uh, wool or for example. Um, so uh, by making their process will make this kind of insulation a lot cheaper. It's it's also inherently not flammable, which is of clear benefit, especially when you're talking about um, cladding insulation on the outside of tower blocks, which is one of the cheapest way to insulate single wall tower blocks, of which we have an awful lot in the UK. So, um, yeah, so we think that, that this uh, is a company that can have an impact in all sorts of ways. Um, it's a great team, um, including one woman. And, uh, uh, and we yeah, wish them all the best as they, they, they work out how to, to scale what they're doing. So in the classic venture capital triumvirate of market product and management, which one do you think is the most important? Uh, for us, uh, you know, it's the product, it's the technology, which is really crucial. But, you know, you can't have one without the other. For us, the tech, the tech and the CEO are equally important. You know, a brilliant technology in the hands of an uninvestable CEO is not going to go anywhere. So, you know, we you do have to have both. But but it does start starts with the technology for us. If it doesn't, if it's not able to have that gigaton layer level, half gigaton level impact, then we're we're not going to look at it. Okay. Tell us about a time something went wrong and what you learned from it. So, you know, I've learned a lot from angel investing mistakes. Um, I think that's the point of your first few investments. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, one in particular that um, that went wrong uh, was a it was a, a solar lighting and solar home system company in Kenya. And one of the things I learned about it was really the difficulty of investing in countries where you are not currently living. You know, being able to do the the due diligence and have the, the depth of network to make a good decision is is very hard. So since then, I have focused on investing where I'm living. So as we've already discussed, this the IS industry is far from a perfect place. If you could change one thing about it, what would you change? It's quite restrictive in terms of what you can invest in. I, I'd like to be able to invest outside of the UK as well. And it's quite difficult to get established. So I don't think that's particular to the EIS industry, though. As a first fund, it's very difficult to get IFAs to be interested in you if you don't have the track record. So, you know, those those are two things that I think would be great to change about EIS. Can I have a third? I know it's supposed to be okay, one. Okay, but... go on. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I was talking to somebody in the EIS Association recently about how we could try and use EIS to make the recovery greener. And it would be fantastic to see um, some kind of low carbon bonanza on EIS reliefs. So they're kind of um, like something similar to the knowledge intensive mm -hmm. kind of additional um, reliefs that you get on EIS and SEIS, uh, if we could link that to kind of a lower carbon uh, business operations and impact, that would be a really great change. That sounds like a good idea to me. We'll vote for that. I'm an avid reader. I've got through 30 books already this year in thank you lockdown. Tell me uh, uh, something that you've read that you like and would recommend to people. So a book that I read uh, fairly recently is um, Good Strategy, Bad Strategy. You know, I've read quite a few strategy books, which, um, you know, mostly have one good idea and then the rest is just fluff. Uh, and this is just like solid, practical advice from beginning to end. I think it's, um, you know, really changed the way that I think about product strategy. So I'd highly recommend that. It's good, a good audio book as well. 
So what do you wish you knew, knew now that you didn't when you started angel investing? Um, I don't Sorry, I'll rephrase that. One more again. What do you wish that you knew when you started angel investing <laughs> that you know now? <laughs> to not be in a hurry when you're making a decision. Um, and if it looks too good to be true, it it probably isn't. Uh, so you know, quite often you talk to entrepreneurs and um, or brokers who will try and push you into a decision. And I think if there's ever any like pressure on the time, um, like you've got to make this decision in this week if you want to be part of the deal, you know, just walk away. There's there's always going to be another good deal. And you know, if you make a decision in a rush, I think that's when I've overlooked things that I shouldn't have. To listen to other people, but to make your own decisions. Uh, so, you know, again, investors can be herd animals and I think it's good to, you know, not to just follow what other people are doing, but, you know, do listen to why they think a company is good or, or not good, but make your own decision. Yeah. Yeah. I think if you do consensus decisions, sometimes you get consensus returns. Quite, quite. Yeah. And uh, like another, another finding I had like early on is that if you, if you think all the deals look good, then you just haven't seen enough deals. So like if you're starting out as an investor, just watch, see as many deals as you can, which is much easier now in the kind of day of, uh, you know, these remote pitch events. Um, you know, look on YouTube for presentations, you know, look on look as look at as many companies as you can. And then you'll start to see patterns of, um, you know, what, what you think will give somebody a competitive advantage. Thank you very much, Pepper, for, for coming on to the podcast today. Um, if people wanted to find out more about what you're doing, where should they go? Uh, so our website, zerocarbon.capital, and you'll find links there to our like our news and um, Twitter. And um, we're just putting together a resources page as well with some other reading recommendations. But if you're interested in investing in climate solutions, um, the best book I can recommend is um, called Drawdown, which is by edited by Paul Hawken which uh, goes through all ideas for fixing climate change and assigns a cost and a benefit to each of them. And it's very engagingly written as well. So I highly recommend that. Bonus book idea. That's yeah. great. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much for Piffa. And I hope everybody enjoyed that. Thank you very much. So we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanco.com forward slash podcast. If you really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.